Good morning. It is great to have you join us on this wonderful weekend. As we continue our remarkable series, uh, every time you hear that song, I pray it echoes through your heart. Um, the world, the pressures, all the things that kind of pound on us. There's just that voice inside us that says, I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fall prey to this. And we're praying the Holy Spirit just rises up inside you and says, hey, say I won't live differently. Say I won't live remarkably, even in a time when uh, so many things weigh on us that we walk into this place with. And uh, I pray today, whatever you came in with, that you take a break from that mentally, kind of take a spiritual reset this morning and walk out of here inspired to live for God. And this place continues to serve as an oasis for you on Sunday mornings, whether you're in a college dorm, in your home, or right here on campus. Um, it's an encouragement to live the remarkable life. Well, each week we start down our road and we run across something. And uh, this week, I'm going to probably bring up one of maybe the most famous ships that have ever sailed, albeit not for a very long time. It was built in the 1900s, early 1900s, by the White Star Line. It was called the RRS Titanic. That massive, massive ship, especially for that time period, was a, a sight to behold. And not only was it filled with luxury, it was filled with some of the latest technology, maybe I'll bet in comparison to ours, but the technology of that time, it was way ahead of its time. And that ship was built so well with its multiple cabins that could store water. I mean, even its own captain said, even God can't sink this ship. And in that phrase, you can almost hear that there's something wrong there. It senses, uh, there's a sense of pride within that. And uh, many of you know the story of the Titanic as well as the things that went on leading up to it. And, and it seems that it really wasn't so much the ship that sank. It was those who handled it, those who ignored the warnings, those who were within the beneath the surface of that beautiful exterior that had a lot to do with the fact that it found itself sinking as late into the night in April of 1912, 1912, late into the night, after having received five warnings from a sister ship that there were too many icebergs, especially for the speed that Titanic was going, which many assume was, in order to set a record, going across the Atlantic, mishandling information and uh, driving itself right into, or sailing itself right into, a bunch of icebergs. And then hitting it on the starboard side, it filled up four of its water containers, which it could have handled, but when it went to the fifth, the fifth is what ended up sinking that ship and, and allowing it not seaworthy and, and countless lives lost, countless lives. And, and, and it's interesting, the Coast Guard got a picture, at least it's believed, of the iceberg that the Titanic hit, and it's not that impressive. In fact, you're kind of going to be disappointed. It's only just a, a little bit sticking out of the water. And it's, it's, it's fascinating that such a little thing could sink such an awesome vessel. I mean, how could something seemingly so small sink such a massive ship? 
But, but see, the iceberg, if you're knowledgeable of them, you know there's far more to an iceberg than what meets the eye, right? And in fact, it's been leveraged as an illustration in many leadership conferences and, and journals across the United States on what it takes to be a leader, the iceberg is used as a principle. In fact, it's Dr. Tim Elmore who writes on leadership. He said, I believe leadership is a lot like an iceberg. 90% of it is actually beneath the surface. And it's what's beneath the surface that sunk the Titanic just as much as it's what's beneath the surface that will sink leaders. See, we are easily blown away by the exterior or the 10% that everyone sees. But it's the 90% of us, our character, who we are inside, what lies beneath the surface that is really the determiner of whether we're going to sink or not. In fact, he leverages four points. Self-discipline lies beneath the surface. The ability to do something you don't want to do. The ability to do something right, even when you don't want to do it. That discipline. Young people, the ability to do something you know is right, even when you don't want to do it. It's a pressure not only when you're young, but even as you get older. There's an aspect of our character that lies beneath the surface. That's our core values. These are the principles that lie within us that make us able to stand for certain things, uh, for certain principles, so that when those moments come, those situations, when there's this iceberg in front of us that will turn to the right path instead of the wrong path, we need to have those core principles before we hit the iceberg. The sense of identity. Ladies, sense of identity. This world is going to try to define the tip of the iceberg, the 10% that shows. But we learned even last week, God is so much more concerned about the beauty of the 90% beneath the surface. That's what's precious in God's sight. And when we have an identity wrapped up in what Jesus says about us, you can chip away at the top, but the bottom stays strong because it's built under the surface of who we are. He even talks about the emotional security to stay under control when someone attacks us. Because especially in the areas of leadership, you're going to get attacked. You're going to go through moments where people take shots at you and what's underneath the surface gives you the ability to survive those. They often say, character is not built during trials. Characters not built during those moments when we got to make a choice to turn to the right or turn to the left. Character's not built then. It's revealed in those moments. The last message from the RRS Titanic from its operator was to another sister ship that had warned it five times of icebergs in the area. And the message was, shut up, I'm busy. If only the warnings would have been heeded. If only they went into that night knowing that anything could possibly ship the, sink the ship. Would what was lying beneath the surface have heeded the warnings? Would it have said, we gotta be careful? 
Like another ship who saw the same iceberg stopped for the night, would the Titanic have if it heeded those warnings instead of trying to get somewhere the fastest, be something that's invincible? And ultimately, what many people led to its demise. Folks, if 90% of who we are is actually lying beneath the surface, wouldn't it be smart for us to work on that a lot harder than we work up on the top part that shows? But so often, aren't we concerned so much about what other people see that we don't take care of that? But the problem is that's what's going to sink us in the end. Not the part we portray, but the part who we really are. You'll hear some people say, you know what character is? Character is who you are when no one's watching. But see, the child of God pushes back on that. The child of God says, my heavenly father goes with me wherever I go. That means he's always watching. You're never alone. And the same God who sees all that junk underneath the surface is the same God who says, let's grow under the surface. And so today's message, Peter is going to ask his church to do something that is so counterintuitive to culture, he knows they got to get it right under the surface. So I don't want to talk to the young lady who walked in here smiling, saying, I'm doing well. I want to talk to the young lady in you who knows you're not doing well. I don't want to talk to the dad who looks like he's got it all together. I want to talk to the dad who knows he doesn't have it together. Let's talk about the person we're all kind of hiding, but the one that God knows. And let's beware, because the devil likes to come in in shame and guilt. You call yourself a Christian. Yeah, Chris found you out. He brought you up. Nope. Let the Holy Spirit speak today. He goes, let's go. Let's work on this. Let's get down underneath the surface and let's get all this stuff so that we don't have to get exposed. I've often heard it said, it's so much better to be humble than to be humiliated. So let's get humble so we don't have to get humiliated. How do we do that? We work on something that's so often missed in the fruit of the Spirit. Goodness. Goodness. And, and, and isn't it great we're surrounded with a society of goodness? No. So this is going to be hard, okay? And Peter knows that. But he's saying, church, if we are enveloped underneath the surface with goodness, we're going to be able to truly be remarkable and truly go to a level of Christianity not many get to in their sanctification process. Today, we'll call it remarkable goodness. It'll be 1 Peter 3, 8 through 22. I'm excited to work on the inner man, the inner woman today. Heavenly Father, use your text, use your word, use the time period of Peter writing to a church under Nero to inspire us to live in a different way. And not just because of who we are and where we're going, eternity, but in order that people notice we're different and ask us about it so that we can share the good news of the victory we have in Jesus Christ. Lord, give us goodness so we can see those victories on a daily basis. And when those moments come, when there's an obstacle in our way, may we not turn the wrong way, but may we turn to the right because of what we've put beneath the surface that will navigate the ship. We'll pray all these things in your name. Amen.
So yeah, Peter's talking to a church going under the leadership of Nero, the tyrant who is awful to them, who is using them as propaganda, who is targeting them, who is trying to kill them, is even in fact murdering many of them, and he's pounding into them the way they are to live. And if you've stuck with us this long, great. It is so good to see you keep coming back each week because I know some of these messages aren't the easiest to take in. And Peter says, I want to go even further. I want to talk about how to actually take evil that's coming at you, and I want you to turn like this big vessel. I want you to turn it for good. What? Yeah. I want you to take evil and turn it for good, and in doing so, you will model Jesus Christ to this society, and when they see it, they're going to go, Nobody does that. Why are you doing that? And you're going to get to tell them. So in order to do that, he knows we've got to get beneath the surface. If he's going to give us this kind of challenge to be good to even our enemies, good to the people we can't stand, show love and pray for our enemies. How are you doing on that this year, by the way? then we're going to have to work down beneath the surface or I'm going to get exposed on social media. I'm going to get exposed in conversations. I'm going to get exposed at the lunchroom at work. I'm going to get exposed if I don't work on what's beneath the surface. Peter knows that. He's going in. Here he goes. He says this. Finally, all of you, okay? I've been writing about submitting to your authorities, submission to marriage, submission to children, to parents. Finally, all of you. Now, this is the five all of yous. I want you to have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. I saw this and I go, ooh, we got a list, okay? Uh, uh, guys like Peter, they don't make lists on accident. So we have unity of mind to sympathy, Brotherly love, you're all from Philadelphia. We're known for how wonderful we treat everybody. Okay, uh, um, I was sorry, okay, all right. Um, tender heart and a humble mind. He points these five out, and don't just miss this, because Peter knows this is so imperative to us living remarkable lives. We can't just go, all right, I'm going unity of mind with everyone. No, I disagree with that guy, and I disagree with her, and I disagree. How do I do that? Okay, I'm going to walk out of here. I'm going to have sympathy, okay? And then you go to pull out, and like five cars pull in front of you. You're sitting in the church for too long. You're like, ah, let's go. I mean, we're going to get exposed so quick. Brotherly love, and then somebody says something. Tender heart. I want tender heart. That guy deserves to be popped. Okay, we, we know we live in a world like this, and we have all this tension around us. We're seeing airplanes fist fighting. We're seeing all this stuff, all sorts of tension in our society. And Peter goes, hey, Christians, all of you, I want you to live this way. And I go, Peter, I see what you're doing here. Look, look, he's trying to go beneath the surface. Finally, all of you. I want you to be seen. I want the top of the iceberg to be seen as remarkable because you have unity of mind under the surface, the ability to work together even though you have differences. What? You're supposed to never talk to people with differences. I want you to have unity of mind. We're fixed on living out for Jesus Christ. We might not all agree about the current situations, but we do agree on Jesus. I want you to have sympathy. I want you to feel affection for people, not go, that's stupid, that's dumb. I want you to have sympathy down in your soul. 
I want that down in there. I want goodness in you. I want brotherly love. That's the love shared by spiritual siblings, if you will. We are all brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And we're eternal beings. We'll be together forever in heaven. You're going to see me a thousand years from now. Why do you have that face? Uh. <laughs> a tender heart, the willingness to be empathetic. Not only, not only to hear what they're going through, but to come alongside it. A humble mind, the willingness to put other people's needs first, the willingness to yield. If that's beneath the surface, it's going to expose itself at the top. And when situations come, it's not going to turn the wrong direction. It's going to turn the right direction. This has to be the goal for our inner man for the coming challenge that Peter's about to drop on us. He says this, all right, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you might obtain a blessing. Young people, I, we don't use the word reviling. Just add that. That's basically the word. Do not repay evil for evil or insult for insult. Oh, man, that's like my life. I'm good at that. Like when somebody takes a shot, I got a better one coming. Chris, you should see me. I'm like a sarcastic genius. I mean, and, and my posts are awesome. I mean, I like, like everybody reads them and they're like, oh, right? Like this is ruining my life. I'm not, I'm good at it. Like when somebody's mean to me, I go pop and I get them back. When somebody like blows me off, I just like blow them off the next day. In fact, there might be even somebody right now you're refusing to talk to and you know it's passive aggressive behavior. You know it's manipulation. And Peter goes, there's a better way. Don't repay evil for evil or insult for insult, but I want you to do something different. I want you to actually bless. I want you to speak well or to invoke God's grace on them. I want you to give them God's grace. I want you to treat them better than they deserve. I want you to take what's meant for evil coming at you, and I want you to turn it for good and bless them. Uh, wow, this is quite a challenge. And, and Warren Wearsby, one of my favorite writers, says, oh, absolutely, it's a challenge. He, he points out there's almost like three levels, three levels that Peter's intersecting with. Look at it as like an elevator, okay? The first level is the satanic level. That's when you treat people that are good evil. You just, evil is going your direction all the time. I say, so evil for good. Someone's doing a good thing and you do evil. We've seen how satanic and corrupt society can be at times. I mean, as a father dropping his kids off at elementary school and having seen in the news years back that a first grade class was shot up, I mean, I get like sick. There is something inside me that goes really, really south when I think of a little first grader being the subject of such evil. It's a satanic level. There's nothing good there. Then, then there's this human level, Wearsby points out. It, it, it seems to be as if this is how most of us operate. When someone's mean to us, we're mean back. When someone insults us, we insult them back. If they're good to us, we do good back. In fact, the Italian in us comes out a little bit. Hey, you do good to me, I do good to you, you know? 
It doesn't it? It's like, aren't we like that? We're all contractual. Hey, yeah, that, hey, man, didn't I hook you up? Hook me up, man. I know how you hook me up. I'll get you. You know, you know we are, we're good at the good for good, evil for evil. That's the human level. But there's this other level. And I am so full of respect for the believers in my life that get to that level. And I desire it too. But there's the divine level where someone does something evil and you turn it for good. I call it Joseph territory. When his brothers threw him in a pit, punched him, kicked him, threw him down, right? And he said what the enemy meant for evil, standing there as the Egyptian king, if you will, under Potiphar's house, and said he turned it for good. Who doesn't want to live up there? Well, Peter, give us more. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit or lies. Let him turn away from evil and do good and let him seek peace and pursue it. You say, I don't know. Well, let me ask you this. If you're lying to someone, isn't your life full of tension? going to get caught. At some point, this is going to come out. It's a horrible life to live. Young person, if you're lying to your parents, you know there's always this tension going on. Are they going to find out? It's not a fun life. When you're speaking evil of people, there's constant tension because you're destroying relationships in your life all the time. And if you speak evil, it's amazing. People who like to gossip find people who like to gossip. So you're around this just web of gossip. And so the people that you're talking bad about, they're only going to turn on you at some point. And it's not a fun life to live. Let them turn from evil and do good. Let them seek peace and pursue it. That's that third level. Someone insults, we, we, we turn a different way. When someone's insensitive, we choose not to respond the same way. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. When evil comes and we go, oh, you're gonna be mean to me? I'm coming back with it. I want you to literally picture, I'm gonna play God for a minute. It's a terrible illustration. Just stay with me because I'm speaking. I want you to picture God doing this to you. I, I, I want my heavenly father turning his face from me. I want you to turn from evil and turn to good. I don't want you to just see the danger ahead. Here's somebody, the situation, someone's done something evil. I want you to turn it for good. And I want you to not go, oh, look at the evil option. I could have done, no. Okay, yep, you're right, over here. Wow. Remarkable goodness, I wrote in my notes, shows love, ready? Even with its enemies. This is a great challenge for us this week. Who do you consider your enemy right now? Remarkable goodness shows love even with its enemies. I've referenced this in the past, but I'll go into a little more detail. Our church has some really good relationships with some managers from a restaurant, a few of you have heard called Chick-fil-A, okay? Um, they're not open today, don't get hungry. So, so what... what the thing is about Chick-fil-A is they've been super beneficial to us and super, super kind to our revivals ministry. They even let us do one of our block parties out front of Chick-fil-A one time. It was a really great experience. And so some of the managers there are very good to us. And you hear some of these stories. And one was 
Um, not too long ago, Chick-fil-A had made an organizational decision that really brought a lot of backlash, okay? And they had people in their parking lots um, picketing, okay? Like, like, we hate Chick-fil-A, we hate Chick-fil-A. They don't really mean it, they're just saying. Uh, we hate Chick-fil-A. And Chick-fil-A got food for them and came out and gave it to them. So what they're doing, they're trying to destroy and slander the name of their organization. They came out and gave them food. I mean, picture the scene. We hate Chick-fil-A. We hate, yeah, yeah, 12 count, yep. (laughs) We hate (laughs) Chick-fil-A, right? We hate Chick-fil-A. Yeah, yeah, barbecue and the Chick-fil-A sauce. Yeah, 12 count, yep. Oh, oh, and the the fries, yeah, okay. We hate Chick-fil-A. At some point, you're like, fine, we don't hate, good grief, give me that food, right? Because you turn that, you, you mean evil, we're going to just give you goodness. I know of a university, same kind of situation, they made an organizational decision. People lined up out front of the university. This university is this, 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 and they're saying all these, all these heart, hurtful things towards the organization, just trying to slander the organization for what they perceived was, was inappropriate. And the university said, hey, it's really cold out there and they're still out there. Let's get our blankets for them and take them out some hot chocolate. So they took out to these kids, a lot of them were still college and they got their big blankets on. I'm not going to say the school because then you'll, you'll know what's going on. But these kids got their blankets on, holding up their picketing signs, drinking the hot cocoa, and the newspaper takes a picture of them rioting against their school with all their school blankets on. And I thought, whoever the marketer is of that school deserves extra money. They're like, we hate our school. They're all in their blankets like, uh, <laughs> you know? I mean, it's, it's, it's an awesome thing. It's a remarkable thing. When you show love, even with your enemies. Now, who's there to harm you if you're zealous for good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you're gonna be blessed. Peter says, who's gonna harm you if you're doing good? But even if you do, even if people are like, you know what, I hate what the church stands for and I stand against them, even if they do that, you're gonna be blessed. Not by the world, no, no. You're not gonna have a ton of friendships there. You're aliens, you're passing through, but you're gonna be seen by God and he's gonna watch you taking what's meant for evil on you and turning it for good. When you submit to your authorities, the world goes, I can't believe they do. I know they don't agree with what that. When, when, you, when you live a certain way with your spouse, like we talked about last week, the world's like, that's not what people do. When a husband's like that, that's not, that's not. When, when, when you forgive someone, when you're mistreated, the world's like, what? Young person at school, if someone's cruel to you and you turn kindness, your class is gonna be like, do you just see what happened there? I know it's weird. I don't think she's okay. You get a blessing from God. And, and, and there's always this fear that builds up inside us. And I think Peter anticipates, well, what do you want me to be? I don't want to be a doormat. Like, I don't want to be a doormat. They're going to come and get me. They're going to come and get me. And, and he leverages Isaiah 8, 12 through 13. He says, listen, I don't want you to be afraid of what could happen to you, especially with the government and all these things. You might perceive something's coming to get you. I don't want you afraid. He said, in fact, he quotes Isaiah and he says this, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, I want you to honor Christ, set Christ apart as Lord. The idea here is sanctify by submitting to him and only fearing his opinion of you, not the world's. You see, there's these movements at times where the church wants the world to go, wow, the church is cool. 
The church, and, and the church says, hey, we got to behave in certain ways so the world thinks we're cool. And what happens is the church then starts to lower its standards so the world says, hey, I can handle that. But the issue is we're not of this place. We're always going to be pushed aside. In fact, we're told people will hate you only because you claim the name of Jesus Christ. But sanctify him as holy. Don't worry about what the world says to you. Young person, if you go into college going, it don't matter what everybody says about me. It don't matter what my professor says about me. It matters what he says about me. You have lived out this verse. You have said, he is the one who defines what I am to do. Because you're going to have people constantly trying to scare you, constantly coming up with things. I bet that's going to happen to us. I bet that's going to happen to us. There have been lots of things that have gone on throughout society where people have, where the enemy has used like this government's coming to get you, destroy people's lives. That's why there's still people up living in the Poconos from Y2K, okay? Like, I'm gonna, they're going to kill me, okay? And it, and it always produces fear. And that's the enemy's desire, is to produce fear and to think that somebody else is in control other than God. If he established the authorities in your life, he's saying, I'm ultimately in control. But they can come get me. Not without coming through me. Not without coming through me. So am I in control or are they? Well, they're really big and scary. Then you have a little God. You need a big God. In fact, conspiracies were always out there from the time of Isaiah. Did you know Isaiah? Isaiah 8, I'll, I'll go to the verse that Peter was quoting. It says this, do not call a conspiracy everything this people calls a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He's the only one you're to worry about. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. See, the object of a conspiracy is to go, there's somebody out to get me. And it produces this dread and fear, and they're all over the place. I mean, Elvis is still alive. We didn't really land on the moon, right? I mean, all these different things. The Titanic really didn't sink on purpose. They actually did that. No, all this different stuff. God's saying, don't get into that. Just don't get into that stuff. Even if there are evil agendas, always remember this. Nothing happens unless it goes through me. Set me apart as holy. And it will take away a lot of that fear that you're worried about happening someday. Always be prepared instead to make a defense. Not make an offense. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to go get, make a defense. I want you to live so remarkably. People come up to you and ask you about the hope that's in you. And yet do it with gentleness and respect. When, when someone comes up and says, hey, why, why, why did you Those girls purposely left you out and you talked to them anyway. I know. Why? Maybe, maybe they forgot to bring, they didn't forget, they did it on purpose. I just want to give them some grace. In doing that, it's so odd. People go, why? Nobody does that. You're supposed to repay evil for evil. But Peter says, instead, I want you to always be prepared. I want you to live a life where people are going to be asking you. I heard one pastor say one time, When's the last time somebody asked you, man, why are you so different? That should be a challenge to all of us. If nobody's ever asked that of you, maybe you're not living that remarkably. Don't let the devil guilt you right there. Let the Holy Spirit go. Let's go. This week, let's turn evil for good somewhere and let someone see it and let me share the love of Jesus Christ. But do it with gentleness and respect. 
defense. The word means apologia. It's where we get the word apologetics, a speech given in defense. When we live such a remarkable life where we turn evil for good, we have a good conscience, Peter says. And so having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ, you know what? They're going to end up being put to shame. What's your conscience level sensitivity like? Do you know? A lot, of t- a lot of talk about consciences right now. You know, there's four consciences brought up in scripture. Let's jump into seminary for a minute. Let's bring up some consciences, okay? One is the evil conscience, okay? Hebrews 10.22 talks about it. This conscience is so poisoned, it approves and excuses bad behavior. Who cares? I don't care about them. You know what? I'm gonna get mine. I'm gonna do what I gotta do. This conscience is evil, in all ways. Then there's the defiled conscience. This is like a window. And the window's not getting cleaned. And so it's a conscience that slowly deteriorates. It's a conscience that's become so dirty, it no longer allows the truth of the word of God to shine in. It's like getting harder. The heart's getting harder, okay? It's like you once allowed the truth to come in, and then, and then not as much now. Then there's the seared conscience, 1 Timothy 4.2. This conscience is so sinned against it no longer is sensitive as much to right or wrong. Let's talk, let's talk when, you're, when you're first like going through high school life, for example. You do something wrong, okay? And it was really hard. You're like, oh man, I shouldn't have done that. My mom and dad are going to be so disappointed. And then you do something wrong the second time and it wasn't as hard. And then the third time, it really wasn't as hard. Let's go into business. Let's say you work in business. You know, your first time you did something that kind of lacked integrity in a business decision. It was hard on you. You were struggling at night. It was difficult. By the second time, you got a few justifications. And then by the third time, you start saying phrases like, well, if you really want to be above board. Why? Because you're starting to go against your conscience. But the clean conscience, the one we desire, the one that leads to level three living because it's got goodness in it, is sensitive to the Spirit's prompting, is reminded of the truth, and when that iceberg's in front of it, it turns the right way. That's that level three. And Peter says, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Remarkable goodness extends love even to its enemies. Even to its enemies. I got thinking about this remarkable goodness and when are the times it gets exposed? And when are the times that I can go out of my way to live a life that people see is remarkable. And so I started going, I need some truth because in my life, believe it or not, a few people talk about me when I'm not there. And sometimes it gets back to me what was said. And I still have to smile and shake a hand. I still have to carry on in my work. Some of you have been in this position where you know what someone said about you or if someone has at least slandered them about you, to you, and you start working through how you feel about it. Maybe you're in a spot in life where someone's just insulting towards you. I started thinking through these times of people who are behaving like my enemies, whether they are or not. People sometimes say, Chris, can you believe that happened to me in the church? I said, yeah. Almost everything hurtful has happened to me inside the church. We're people. 
I've done it to others. They've done it to me. So how could I have remarkable responses and extend love even to those who are behaving like my enemies, fortunately and prayerfully, hopefully they're not. And so let's pull up the remarkable goodness file for a minute. And, and let's talk about the apologetic of turning evil for good. When someone is rude to you, you've got to have some thoughts that come into your life that are buried deep down inside underneath the surface so that you get exposed as remarkable. What do you mean? Okay, when something happens, it's often said, you have two options. You think through what would goodness do? What would evil do? I would call it this. It said, when someone's rude to you, you can get better or you can get bitter. When someone's evil to you, you can get better or you can never talk to them again. When, when somebody does something that's hurt you, you can get better or you can make sure everyone knows what a horrible person they are that you talk to. When someone ignores you, you can get better or you can ignore them and let them feel how bad it hurt. You can operate on the human level or you can go to that divine level and turn evil for good. So you're gonna to have to have something down beneath the surface. Here's the first one. Let's say you've been targeted by the critic. I, I ran this by a, a team Bible study. It's not a very large group, but we have a nice little group of freshmen and we meet with them. And, and I said, what would you do if you were criticized by somebody? They were awesome with what evil would do. Oh, I know what evil would do. With good, they were like, uh, you know, somebody else want to answer? But they were awesome. And aren't we all, like, ooh, ooh, targeted by a critic? Oh, yeah, yeah. What did he say about me? He said this. Oh, yeah? Well, no, you, you tell him this. We're quick with it. Well, I don't even like that guy. I knew that guy was a jerk. We, we, it might not even be true. What could I do instead? I like to refer to this verse when I'm targeted by a critic. Don't take it to heart. Don't let it get down in there. Scripture says in Ecclesiastes, also do not take to heart anything, pe everything people say. For many times also, your own heart has known that even you have cursed others. Here, here's what I like to say to myself. Chris, are you free from never being critical of somebody maybe too harshly? No. So don't take this to heart. Maybe they didn't really mean, maybe it was an emotional moment. Maybe they weren't, maybe it's not even true. And in doing so, you apply grace to that moment and you turn evil, which meant to destroy your day, and you turn it for good. I'm not letting this get down into my heart. I'm not letting this get beneath the surface. Here's another situation. Have you ever been wronged by the inconsiderate? Any moms in the house? Anybody ever just be inconsiderate to you? Make you pick everything up, do everything, overly work? Guys, you know what it feels like too. Ever been wronged by the inconsiderate? Somebody who said they were gonna be somewhere they didn't come through for you? And it really irks you and it's bothering you? What would evil do? Make them feel it. What would goodness do? You ever hear the phrase, get over it? Well, I want to offer a new one. Let's get overlooking it. I'll tell you what, don't be someone who's easily offended. It's a horrible life to live. Pride is easily offended. Humility can take a blow or two. Guys out there who like to watch like the MMA, all that stuff, one of the greatest respects a fighter can be given is the ability to be told of that the guy can take a punch. Sometimes as believers, we gotta be able to take a punch. 
Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it's his glory to overlook the offense. Let's have these things in our head. Let me, let me do one more here. Third, um, maybe you're annoyed by the opinionated. Are you around opinionated people? If you're like, no, not really, that means you're the opinionated person, right? Right? <laughs> no, no, not really. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm very, I'm. What does goodness do? What does evil do? When someone throws out an opinion that kind of bothers you, here's one of my responses. Give them some grace. We all grow at different speeds. We all handle things a little bit differently. One of my mentors gave me that line when I would get frustrated with where teenagers in our youth ministry were at spiritually. He'd say, hey, Chris, don't be so hard on them. They all grow at different speeds. Just like they grow at different heights, they grow at different speeds. And one of these kids might drive you nuts all through high school and in their 30s, they'll be a deacon in your church. They grow at different speeds. Give them some grace. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Why not one more? Maybe you're yelled at by the hot-tempered. That's really frustrating. We got somebody screaming at us. What would goodness do? What would evil do? I know a lot of administrators have been dealing with a lot of hot-tempered people. I know teachers have been dealing with a lot of hot-tempered people. I know a lot of people in leadership positions are dealing with a lot of hot-tempered people. I've been really encouraged by a, an actually a Jeremy Camp song recently. In it, there's a line. It says, power never has to be loud. And it was a reference to our Heavenly Father never yells at us. He's under control at all times. But you know what scripture calls a hot-tempered person? Calls him a fool. And, and how can I turn something that means evil against me and turn it for good? Fools give full vent to their rage, but the wise bring calm in the end. A hot-tempered person stirs up conflict, but the one who is patient calms a quarrel. I had a mentor in my life say, Chris, when people get loud, I get quiet. What? Yeah. He's like, literally, as they're yelling at me, I get quieter and quieter. I have even had one time a guy yelling at me go, what? <laughs> because I know the principle. A soft word turns away wrath. And my goal is to calm the situation, not escalate it. This is counterintuitive to the world. You want to win a debate? They get loud, you get louder. Just watch ESPN. You want, you, want, you, want to, you want to have somebody um, target you as a critic? Criticize them back. Somebody's inconsiderate to you? Give it right back to them. But what if this week when someone hurts you or offends you, you take what was meant for evil and you turn it for good? Could you go to number seven for me? Let's say you're offended by a brother or sister in Christ, one of the one another in the room. What would goodness do? What would evil do? The Lord is so clear in this. Don't let it take root in you. Don't allow unforgiveness to grow. Bear with one another. Forgive one another. And if any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. You see, there's something that Scripture says, watch out for. There's this root of bitterness, Scripture calls in Hebrews, that can grow, and it can grow into a home, and bitterness gets down where goodness should be, and it just swallows up goodness, and it crushes the sympathetic and makes you angry, and it squ 
squeezes the tenderhearted and makes you nasty. And it's because you've allowed that root of unforgiveness to get inside of you. And so God says, forgive, forgive. That evil's coming at you. Turn it for good. Why? Because it's going to save your ship. It's going to save your ship. Remarkable goodness shows love even with its enemies. It extends love even to its enemies. And it's inspired by Jesus Christ. Peter takes this quick tangent and he goes, guys, for Christ, he modeled this. He suffered once for our sins, not multiple times like the animal sacrifices. He was the perfect sacrifice. And so one time and done, the righteous for the unrighteous, he died the good for the evil. While I was yet a sinner, he died for me. See, I was that one that was on the evil side. I was once an enemy of Jesus Christ. And now through the grace of God, I'm seated at the table. Why? Because love moved first. He brought me to God. He might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. His resurrection brought me. It's as if being ushered into a king's presence. Jesus moved first and made me his enemy because I was born in sin for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And he made me a child of God and a friend. He moved first. And whenever I turn evil to good, I'm copying my savior. Oh, and Peter goes, in which he went and he proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formally did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared and we all went, what? Peter knows too much. How do you know this, Peter? How much did Jesus tell him after he was resurrected? Jesus has clued Peter into something and like all good emotional people, he is perfectly charged up on course and he takes a right turn and he's just as passionate about that right turn. These guys, you know, like when he went and he proclaimed to the spirits in prison, spirits in prison, it's an angelic word here. So he went and talked to angels in prison that can't be holy angels. It has to be evil angels and evil angels are all demons because they formally did not obey. Okay, so this is referring to a past event. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, Peter, what do you know? It seems he's referring to a time period that was going on while Noah was building his ark where something happened in that demonic realm. They left their level, if you will, and went into the human realm. He says when man... In Genesis, I, I, we, we go to this, maybe this place where he's talking about, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Don't get confused by the sons of God. It's juxtaposed against daughters of men. In other words, it's put very close together and used as contradiction. So in other words, this seems to be referring to angelic realm an angelic realm misbehaving. So this must be demons, it seems, left their proper abode, a place they were not allowed to go, possessed men and married to the daughters of man when they saw they were attractive and they took their wives as they chose. They were trying to destroy, these demons were trying to destroy God's image of marriage. And look, he continues, he says, 
Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide with man forever. Free his flesh. His days shall now be 120 years. No more of this 700-year living. The Nephilim came from this marriage situation in those days. That means fallen ones. And also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. Peter takes this tangent and says, remember when Christ went down and he proclaimed to those spirits in prison because they left their proper abode, possessed men possibly, slept with women, and had these demonic babies, if you will. And God said, that's it. I'm done. I'm flooding this place out. And those demons that possibly did this, it seems, are thrown into prison. How do we know? Well, Jude goes into this and he says, there are angels who did not stay within their own position. They didn't stay on their level. They left it, went into the human level, but they left their proper dwelling. And he has kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment day. It seems as if there's demons that roam this earth. And there are demons that are so heinous and so wicked and so evil, God has locked them up in the abyss. In fact, if you followed our Revelation series, you know that in the tribulation, those chains are released in those evil, heinous, demonic realm goes on to earth. Peter says, Jesus died and went down and told those angels. He proclaimed to them, what? I'm the winner and resurrected. How many of you attempted to think you serve a Jesus who got smacked around? The suffering servant. Oh, you do. But that was the first time he came. The second time he's coming back as the overcoming winner. This time a sword out of his mouth, fire in his eyes. And he's going to wipe out anything in his way. And so it's best to be on the winner's team. And when you know that suffering precedes exaltation, you can live out a life that is saved by coming to know Jesus as your personal savior. And that's why Peter says, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is just eight, were brought safely through the water. All these people on earth, only eight came through. He says baptism, which corresponds, which means copies that. So it's an illustration conversation. It's not, it's not, this is what saves you. Anything outside of salvation by grace is adding works to salvation. This baptism he's talking about is the same thing, being immersed in this judgment and coming out, Jesus coming alive. We are immersed in this water and come through it saved because of our salvation in Jesus Christ. He affirms that by saying, not the removal of dirt from the body, that's not what I'm talking about, but it's an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, is now at the right hand, the position of authority, with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. You are saved. You are brought through. The first eight were saved by the ark of Noah. You, the church, are saved by the ark of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he came and brought you, those who came to know Jesus Christ, by living out a life of turning evil for good. See, remarkable goodness shows love even with its enemies extends love even to its enemies and offers love even for its enemies. On a day where our communities will have a lot of fun tonight, where kids will be cute and eat some candy, 
Being in pastoral ministry, I know there's also going to be another, another area of life. A lot of evil. We're not going to be a part of it, but a lot of evil. So you're having fun with your families and all these things. There's also some dark things that go on on a night like this. Satanic things. And so what a better day to remind the satanic realm that Jesus Christ is the authority. He is the winner. And he offers you to be on his team. And so if you're sitting there today and you don't know if you're on the winning team, he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And what a better way to end a message by then sharing with you the gospel that is Jesus Christ. You don't have to arrive to come to him. Don't let the enemy lie to you. You don't have to be this awesome person to come to him. In fact, you can walk into a place like this, his enemy, and leave his friend. How? By accepting Jesus Christ as your personal savior. Scripture is so clear. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, Jesus Lord, you will be saved. Instead of drinking the poisonous bitter root of unforgiveness, why not grab a cup and enjoy some forgiveness today, enemy of God? Drink it down and let that goodness flow beneath the surface and build into you a tender heart that was now hardened. It can become tender. May it come down, all right, and take a prideful heart and make it humble. And in doing so, enable goodness to flow through your body, getting rid of those bitterness and living a life that you will love to live, a great life, turning evil for good. The enemy may have allowed a lot of hurt into your life. You may have been hurt by a lot of people. I want to encourage you today. Don't let that sink your ship. Turn it to good. Take all the things that have happened to you and go out of your way to maybe encourage someone so that it doesn't happen to them. This week, when that little iceberg comes your way and it's like, ah, it's no big deal. Just picture something a lot larger underneath and go, here's my chance to be remarkable. Teenager, you can do it at school. Kid, you can do it on the playground. Dad, you can do it at work. Mom, you can do it in the home. Grandma, you can do it in the retirement center. Grandpa, you can do it from your in-law suite. <laughs> Turn evil to good. Be remarkable. Why? Because Jesus did it for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for the word. Thank you for this truth. God, this is such a tough challenge because it hurts so bad when people are mean to us, when people insult us, when people embarrass us, people abuse us, people are cruel to us. And we know we've probably done it too. And so who are we to throw the first stone? But Lord, it doesn't take the wound away. And so if we're going to offer forgiveness, we need to trust that you will deal with it. We need to trust that you're in charge, not us. And we go, God, 
I'm going to forgive them. Not because they deserve it. I'm going to forgive them. Not because it doesn't hurt. I'm going to forgive them because you forgave me. While I was a sinner, you died for me. I didn't do anything to deserve that. And so because you forgave me when I did nothing to deserve it, I'm going to trust you when you tell me to do the same thing. And this week, Lord, I'm going to do my best to take what the enemy meant for evil. I'm going to turn it for good. Give me the strength, Lord, because apart from you, I can't do it. But I want to live in such a remarkable way that somebody this week, this month, this year goes, what do you know that I don't know? And we say, it's actually who I know. We pray this in your name. Amen.